0: I got so excited in the first service that my mouth moved faster than my brain. So we're going to pray in this service and ask the Holy Spirit to connect the two. Can we do that? Can you, can you pray for your pastor like, oh, Jesus, please help him speak intelligently. Can we do that? Holy Spirit, we love you. And we know that you love us more than we could ever love you. And there are some things that you want to impart to us, things that you are excited to communicate to your kids. So I ask that you would help us have ears to hear and hearts to receive. Lord, you would would help me communicate this thing that is bubbling up inside of me that I think is birthed by the Spirit of God. I want to do justice, Holy Spirit, to what you want to speak to us. So would you please help me? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to do a quick thought experiment. You don't have to say anything out loud. I just want you to track in your mind with me. If you were to ask someone to summarize Jesus' central message, like if you had to encapsulate in a a phrase or a couple of words, Jesus' core message, what do you think it would be? Just think about that with me for a minute. What what is the core message of Jesus? Some of you probably thought love your neighbor, yeah? Some people might say love God. Some might say love and serve people. Uh, Some might say... Love your enemy as yourself. Some might say, do unto others, right? As you would have them do unto you. Any of these kind of resonate? Like, yeah, that might be, that might be something somebody might say. Hello? Oh, okay, just checking. Just checking. Wanna make sure. Just I scared my family. Uh, I apologize. Last time I'm gonna do that.
1: <laughs> if you
0: saw what I saw, you'd do it too. Huh. <laughs> Those are all elements of of core core gospel messages that we find from Jesus, but it's not his central teaching. If, if, If we wanted to know, like, Jesus, what was the core message while you were here, we can actually go to the gospels and he tells us. The core message that Jesus preached everywhere he went was the kingdom of God is here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the first time he starts talking to people, this is what comes out of his mouth. Let me, let me show you. Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Luke 4, 43. Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I was sent. Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus breaks on the scene, Pastor Billy told us last week, after 400 years of not a single prophetic voice in the nation of Israel, and the first thing out of his mouth is the kingdom of God is here. The first thing out of his mouth is God is up to something unique and distinct in this space that people have been longing for, praying for, waiting for, but have not yet seen, and then Jesus invites them to be a part of it. Every year, the beginning of the year, I go away for a few days and just spend some time praying and studying and asking the Lord, God, what is it that you want us to learn as your kids this year? And I'll come back with a uh, a number of different teaching series, and then we walk together through those throughout the year. This year was a little bit different. This year, I've kind of felt the Lord, even before the end of the year, begin to speak this overarching theme to me about things that he wanted us to be talking about together, things that I've begun to dive in and study and and. It was the kingdom of God. I just kept hearing that phrase over and over, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. I'm sitting down with some of my pastor friends in town, and I'm like, hey, do you guys ever, like, ask God for a theme for the year? Because I don't ever do that, but I'm curious if you do. And one of them's like, oh, yeah, all the time. I said, what are you feeling for, for our city or for your church this year? He goes, I just really feel like we're supposed to lean into the kingdom of God. Okay. Maybe, maybe I'm doing this Right. Maybe God is up to something unique in our community at this particular point in time. So I've been doing a, a deep dive into, into what is the kingdom of God? What isn't the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God here? Is it like a present reality? Is it a future reality? All of these questions start bubbling up. And, and what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of give you a, an overarching idea of the, how the theme of the kingdom of God threads throughout the, the story of God. And then in the days to come, we're going to dive in a little bit more deeply into what each of these things means and, and how we, we apply it to our daily lives. So, so today, you'll notice you don't have any fill-ins. I'm just going to kind of tell you a story so you can lean back a little bit, take it all in. Some of it, you're going to go like, oh, that totally makes sense. And some of it, you're going to be like, what? I think I need to hear more about that. Well, fear not, you will. So we're going to take a journey together this year to understand what Jesus is talking about when he stands up and goes, "Hey guys, the kingdom of God is here right now." Now, here's the first thing we need to understand: What language was the Bible definitely not written in? English. So, one of our first challenges when we talk about something like a kingdom is to figure out what does that mean in English thought. In, in English, in contemporary thought, when we talk about a kingdom, we're almost always talking about a place, right? So if you go to LAX, you get on a plane, you fly to Heathrow, you find yourself in the United Kingdom, right? If you're any golf fans, right? Okay, so if you've been watching the dynamic, the tension between the PGA and the Live Tour, you know that the Live Tour is being funded by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So if you want to know what the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is, you go to a map and you go, oh, look, it's that place over there. That is not what kingdom meant In Greek and Hebrew thought. In Greek and Hebrew thought, kingdom refers to a state of activity. It wasn't a place where a king reigned. It was actually the activity of that king reigning or ruling over that kingdom. So when we think of kingdom, we think of a noun. It's a person, place, or a thing. When Jesus' audience heard him talking about a kingdom, they're thinking verb. They're thinking God is doing something. God is ruling or reigning in a particular way. As a matter of fact, for kind of our conversation, the kingdom of God might be better understood as the reign of God. So it's just like Jesus showed up and said, hey guys, uh, in me, starting today, the rule of God or the reign of God is present with you right where you are. Jesus was, was announcing the arrival of God to take back his rule of the world, So the kingdom of God is where God's will is being done, right? The borders of a kingdom, outside of that kingdom, the king can't do anything. But within the kingdom, one of the things that defines it as a kingdom is the king's ability to have his way. Now, granted, in our day and age, the idea of kingdom is probably a bit archaic. It doesn't make as much sense, but just bear with me. Since this was Jesus' central message, that the rule of God, the kingdom of God, was breaking in to people's reality, it seems important to me that we take the time <clears throat> to understand it. So let's, let's seek to understand it. So here's, here's the overview. Here's kind of the backstory. Um, we have our Bible. I, I call it the story of God. It's his story. He's writing it. He's watching over it. He's fulfilling it. We have... In our Bible, 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three different languages. It tells the story of our world from creation to today and points forward to a point when Jesus is going to return. And because it's God's story, I call it the story of God. But there is an overarching narrative that is woven throughout the story of God that speaks of the kingdom of God. Now, the first time you hear of the kingdom of God, kingdom language, is in Genesis one twenty-eight. That's the first page of my Bible. The last time you discover kingdom language, ruling or reigning kingly language, is Revelation 22.3, the last page of my Bible. So the first page of my Bible begins to set the stage for me to understand the kingdom of God. The last page of my Bible talks about the fulfillment of God's arrival with his kingdom. So I think it's kind of a big deal. Let me show you. Now, now this, this is where I'm going to start this massive information dump, okay? Remember, this is just an overview. So if, if you don't catch all of this, that's okay. I just want you, I want you to see what I'm learning, where this is in the Bible. So Genesis 128, uh, excuse me, 126 through 28. God said, let us make human beings in our image let us, to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea. That's, that's kingdom language. The birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all of the animals that scurry along the ground. When you read in Hebrew, they will reign, that is a standard Hebrew word for what kings do. So at the very outset, how God wanted to relate to his creation was with a a kingdom mindset, that God was going to, through men and women, be extending his rule, his reign over all of his creation. God's reign was meant to be brought to bear through humans who bear his image. So being made in the image of God has to do with who we are. It also has to do with what we do. We're going to dive into that next week. This was the plan, that the kingdom of God on earth would be managed by his image-bearing people. But we know the story, right? It goes on to this thing in Genesis 3 that we call the fall. Uh, Remember, the rule of God is where what he wants done is actually done. Adam and Eve have this conversation with this serpent. They're tempted, and they choose to disobey God. When they choose to disobey God, God's will is not being done. The kingdom of God is what? Where God's will is being done. So now in Genesis 3, we have the emergence of new kingdoms that are challenging living outside of the authority of the kingdom of God. Adam is doing what he wants. He's establishing a kingdom. Eve is doing what she wants. She's establishing a kingdom. They have kids, Cain, kingdom, Abel, kingdom. Those kingdoms collide and
1: one of them kills the other.
0: The kingdom of God has suffered violence. and Now we have chaos on earth. We have heartache. We have relational disruption. We have pain. We have death. We have sorrow. We have division. But God doesn't give up on his creation. In Genesis 3.15, he speaks a promise, and he says, there is someone who will come who will crush the serpent's head, and he will undo the damage that he has done. What is the damage he has done? He has initiated rebellion against God's kingdom, against God's rule on earth. Someone is going to come, God says in Genesis 3.15, who's going to fix that. And then as you continue to read Genesis, you find these different ways where God intersects with people. So in Genesis 12, he meets a man named Abraham, and he speaks a promise to him, makes a covenant, an agreement with him, and says, through you, every family on earth is going to be blessed. I'm going to make you a great nation. Someone is going to come from your line that is going to have a significant impact on the world. And from Abraham, we get first the nation of Israel, and then we, we, we follow them through Egyptian captivity and, and deliverance. We see them coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. God meets with them with fire on Mount Sinai and gives them the law. God teaches them how people are to live in his kingdom. This is how you live as my image-bearing This is what life looks like in my kingdom. You you don't kill people. You don't lie. You you honor your spouse and you leave your neighbor's spouse alone. Uh, you, You care for the poor. This is what kingdom living looks like. But they continue to get it wrong. And because he loves us, even when they're getting wrong, he's making provision for them to remain in some sort of relationship with him through the covenant and the sacrificial system. God takes them into this land, this promised land that he's given them, and he he sends them judges and prophets to rule over them and, and teach them what it means to follow him as his people. And then his people, who God has blessed and blessed and blessed, one day they go, I've got an idea. I want a king. I'm not content to be led by prophets, and I'm not content to be led by judges. We want a king. So the elders come to Samuel, who was leading them as a prophet, look, they told him, you are now old. Horrible opening line. I mean, you want to start a fight with somebody? Go, hey, look, Grandpa. I mean, it's it's on there. Your sons are not, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. We want a kingdom like theirs. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they told you, the Lord replied. They are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. God says, Samuel, this longing in their heart, this desire to be a king, it's not about you. They've rejected me. They have said to me, we don't want to live under your governance. We don't want to live under rule. What does that sound like? It sounds like now. (laughs) You're not wrong. Uh, I was going back to the garden, Adam and Eve. We don't want to live under your kingdom rule. We want to establish a kingdom that makes sense to us, where we get what we want. And so God says, you want to live under another kingdom? I'll give you another king. So they have a bad king, Saul, a great king, David, a questionable king, a guy named Solomon, and then the wheels fall off. And instead of their up and to the right trajectory that they're hoping for, these guys are down and to the left. And there is a series of progressively worse kings and ultimately a divided kingdom. There's 12 tribes of Israel, right? Well, one day 10 tribes go, we're out. We're, we're just, nope, we're not following what you're following. And the 10 tribes break off, the northern tribes. And then you've got two southern tribes that remain. You have Judah and Benjamin. So the northern tribes become Israel. The southern tribes become Judah. Israel does not have a single good king. Read Chronicles, first and second. Read first and second Kings. They move to idolatry, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So they suffer defeat after defeat after defeat, and finally, they're carried off into captivity so many times that they disappear. Have you ever heard the phrase "the lost tribes of Israel"? Yeah, that's a real thing. These ten tribes—they disappeared. We don't know where they went. They—they they walked out of relationship with God to such a significant degree that they were destroyed. Introduces this, this season of time that we call captivity and exile. Judah had some good kings, but they also had bad kings. And so they constantly are also conquered and taken into captivity. They'd, they'd be like, bad king, bad king, almost destroyed, good king. Bad king, bad king, good king, okay king, really bad king. They just never lived in alignment with God's plan for them. And so whenever they got really bad, another, uh, an, another country, another empire would come and, and capture them. And they're living in this cycle. And then around 740 B.C., this guy named Isaiah shows up. And he writes this beautiful poem that we find in Isaiah chapter 52. Ju- Judah had just been conquered again. Uh, The temple had been destroyed. The people had been taken into exile. There's only a few people remaining left in Jerusalem, and Isaiah is one of them. And as he's listening to the Holy Spirit speak to him, he writes this promise to the people who remained in Jerusalem as a poem. And this is what it says. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. The watchmen shout and sing with joy before their very eyes. They see the Lord returning to Jerusalem. Isaiah is saying in this poem, despite the destruction that you see around you, there will be a messenger that comes. He's looking into the future. And when he says how beautiful are his feet, he hasn't had a mani petty, He's not, you know, he isn't looking like he's got really attractive toes. It's, the beauty is found in the message that he carries. So how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. What is the good news that he brings? Despite the destruction of Jerusalem, God still reigns as king. Have you ever looked at the world around you and based on what you see gone, how could God possibly have maintained any semblance of control? The wheels have completely gone off. Isaiah is saying, even when things look bad, it does not mean that God is not reigning that there is not a place or a way where his his rule is being extended. He says he's going to make that reign known that God is still on his throne when his messenger arrives in Jerusalem with a message of good news. And then there are more seasons of, of upheaval for the people of Judah. In the following centuries, nations conquer nations. People are carried into captivity. People come back out of captivity. The temple is destroyed. The temple is rebuilt. But from 700 B.C. on, Israel is never again an influential standalone nation. And now, after all of that and then 400 years of silence, Rome is the power in Jerusalem. Rome is the empire that has taken over what remains of the the people of Judah. And suddenly, Jesus shows up on the scene declaring that he's a messenger, and that he has good news. Remember what he said in Luke 4? I must proclaim, he said, the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying right out of the gate in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, I am the promised messenger from Isaiah 52. And what was the point of the message in Isaiah 52? God reigns. And his reign is being instituted in Jerusalem. This is what we call the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so Jesus comes making this proclamation. I've got some good news. Good news in the Bible always, say always, good news in the Bible always has to do with the announcement of the reign of a king. Good news is never happy news, hey, your team won, hey, you got a promotion. Good news, evangelion, is the word always has to do with the reign of a new king, the advent of a new period in time when there is a new ruler. So Jesus, in saying the good news of the kingdom of God, is announcing the arrival of the reign and the rule, because kingdom is an action, arrival of the, the reign and the rule of God in Him, he is both the messenger saying the king is coming and he's the king saying, guys, I'm here. Your king has come. His kingdom, his rule is at hand. But we find again as we read through the gospels that the kind of kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is radically different from the one people were expecting which is why sometimes, church, we hear about the kingdom of God and we go, I don't see it, because kingdoms conquer. Kingdoms overwhelm through force. Kingdoms send an army after an army. Peace comes from one kingdom to another when the other kingdom has been annihilated. But Jesus comes instituting a different kind of kingdom, way different than what was expected, upside down, tossed on its head. In, in his kingdom, he says, the last or first. He says, those that die to themselves actually find what it means to be truly alive. In this kingdom, enemies are to be forgiven and not to be harmed. The the poor and the vulnerable are a priority. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But people missed it because most of the people that Jesus was speaking to were looking for a king like David because they wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. But Jesus comes to say, God doesn't rule you like the other nations. If the king was going to rule the world from Jerusalem, as they were all expecting, if the king was going to bring about peace throughout all of the world, they were going to obviously do it through violence. The the people would rise up, they they would overthrow the occupying powers of Rome, and the kingdom of God would be established like every other kingdom. Those who led in the temple were looking for this kind of a kingdom because if that kind of a kingdom came about, they would have power, they would have influence. They didn't like this upside-down kind of a kingdom that Jesus came preaching, which led to his death and ultimately his resurrection. Those in the temple conspired to have Jesus crucified. Why was he crucified? What was the charge that was leveled against him when they took him to Pontius Pilate? No, he says he's a king. Blasphemy motivated them 100%. That's a great answer. But when they went into the political arena and stood before Pilate, they said, he claims to be a king. What was the banner over the cross when he was crucified? What did Pilate put over there? King of the Jews.
1: So they conspired to have Jesus crucified as a rebel king and he let them,
0: upside-down kingdom. He went to the cross, turning the other cheek, forgiving his enemies and refusing to participate with evil. And when he refused to participate with evil, he exhausted its power at the cross. Evil only has power where it has permission. And Jesus, the king of an upside-down kingdom, lived within that kingdom dynamic by offering forgiveness to the very people who were pounding nails through his hands and his feet on the cross. And in so doing, in refusing to meet evil with evil, he exhausted the power of evil because he was living in a different kind of kingdom. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again in a radical act of new creation. God was in Jesus beginning something brand new, something never seen before. Everyone else that Jesus raised from the dead, did what shortly thereafter? Died. This was God in Christ beginning the work of new creation and restoration so that his kingdom could fully come. We live in this tense time between, it's called the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God has come. We see it in Jesus with all he did and said. But it has not yet fully come. It doesn't fully come to Revelation 22, verse 3. But not only did he begin something new, not only did Jesus pay our debt and defeat death, he said that if we place our trust in him, we could be a part of this new kingdom now. Not some point in the future when we die and get in some spiritual elevator and disappear up to some place in the sky, but here and now we are able to, we are invited to participate with the reign and the rule of God. Reigning as Jesus did. Sacrificial acts of love that brought healing and wholeness to others. Not reigning as the Romans did. If your picture of the kingdom of God ever falls into
1: domineering behavior,
0: antagonism, and exerting force, you've missed the beauty of the kingdom of God. What the kingdom of God demonstrated in Christ's death and then in his resurrection as he forgave as he died was that the power of forgiveness is actually stronger than the power of vengeance. That all of the might that hell could throw at Jesus, as he labored on the cross in love, all of the hate, all the vitriol, all of the anger, all of the spite, was not as powerful as the love of Jesus as he hung on the cross. That is the testimony, church, of the resurrection. I took everything they had in love, and came out of the grave. But that's not all. Not only could we live within the reign and the rule of the kingdom of God right now, he promises his believers that he's going to give them the same power that led and sustained him, that allowed him to live in this upside-down kingdom. What was true of me, he says to them, can be true of you. He tells them to wait In Jerusalem, he points to a promise of the Father that is going to come from heaven. And on one of the Jewish festivals, one of the feast days, the day of Pentecost, people are baptized in the Holy Spirit and immediately begin to declare the mighty works of God. Immediately step into that role of a messenger bringing good news. They don't simply step out and say, you can be forgiven for your sins. They don't go to people and say, you're a hot mess, but God loves you anyway. They begin to speak the gospel. The gospel is Evangelion. The gospel is the declaration that there is a new king who is now reigning. That's what happened after Pentecost. That was the birth of the church. Not this insular, personal, your sins can be forgiven. Yes, your sins can be forgiven, but Christ's death and resurrection was meant to unlock something far greater than your personal security, because as we will see as we walk through this series together, God never changed his mind about reigning and ruling through his image-bearing people,
1: which is pretty freaking cool. Okay. trying not to go, because we have to finish, too. All right.
0: This idea that we have a king who is working to put the world back in order was a radical idea. It was a radical idea. All of Paul's letters speak of it. Every time, guys, every time you read, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, every time you read any other book in the New Testament and you see the word gospel, you need to remember this is what it's talking about. Every time you read the word gospel, it can't be it cannot be truncated just good news, happy news. It is always a declaration that we have a king and he is presently reigning and we can live under his rule. He is our rightful king and he deserves our allegiance, but he reigns with grace and with mercy. Paul and others took this kingdom living really really seriously you have to remember that like with Jesus, all of the martyrs of the first century, all of those, Paul, Peter, James, all of those who were martyred for their faith were not killed by Rome for preaching that Jesus will forgive you because he loves you. They were universally crucified or killed by teaching for teaching that there was a king greater than Caesar that his kingdom was the true kingdom, and they were living under allegiance to that kingdom because Rome called that treason. And when you are living in the control of an empire and you commit an act of treason, the penalty is? Why were all these men and women killed? Because they were choosing to live under the reign of another king. Living out their faith as Christ demonstrated, but clearly saying, we understand that God has begun a work in Christ. And his kingdom is advancing here on earth. We'll talk about that too. And then this, this ark comes back down, Revelation 22.3, Christ's return. You and I are living in a period of time called the last days. That's what Peter said when he stood up and he quoted the prophet Joel at Pentecost. In The last days, God will pour out his spirit. In the last days, the kingdom of God is here. It is advancing, but it has not yet fully been realized. We are invited to reign as Christ has by bringing things to a place of restoration, but God has not yet fully restored all things. That won't happen until Jesus comes back. But we look forward in anticipation to the time when Christ returns and will restore all things. Scripture says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. Revelation 22.3, no longer will there be a curse on anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And his servants will worship him. This is a picture of the kingdom of God, the activity of God, the rule of God, coming to earth fully and completely. This is what we look forward to. It's what we live in anticipation of. It's what we practice living into until he comes back. The story of God is a story about the kingdom of God, about his rule and his reign, both here and now and in the future. And You and I, you and I are meant to know, to live in, to participate in this kingdom and to live under the direction of a king. It's what's going to guide our conversations this year. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be an image bearer reigning with him. What does it mean to bring new creation wherever I go, to partner with him in acts of restoration? And it's, we're going to answer some of the questions. What does it mean for me in the day-to-day? What, if God's reign is here, why is there still much pain? We're, two weeks, we're going to tackle that one. But for now, I just, I, with this growing understanding of the greatness of what God is up to, I just want to close our time with worship. I just want to worship our king, our creator, the one who who made us on purpose and for a purpose. Would would you stand with me? Because as we stand to worship, I I, I just want to invite you to consider the majesty of God, the beauty, the complexity of his plan, His, his commitment to do good to you through the centuries, and his desire to reach out and touch the world through you. To contemplate that and then, then turn that into praise. That when we sing, you are my creator, it's not just you made me. It's you made me to, to live with me, to, to partner with me. There, there's a line in this song that says, this is my great and everlasting hope. I've been saved and heaven is my home. Heaven is God's realm. It's where he reigns. It's It's a word that can sometimes be translated kingdom. We have access to that today because the kingdom of God is here among us now. So let's worship the king. Because he is king, there is no part of the created order over which God does not declare mine. If he is, in fact, presently reigning, there is no relationship, no family member, no issue outside the scope of his sovereignty. I just felt very strongly as we close that we're to invite the reign of God, the rule of God, to begin to intersect some of these pain points in our community, in our church, or even in our lives. So if you would just bow your heads with me for just a moment, I just wanna pray for you. If there is a place, I, I really feel particular for family members. Some of us have family members that are experiencing great trauma, great pain, great brokenness. And we look at it and from a natural perspective, we go, I don't know how to break this cycle. I don't know how to set this person free. I don't know how to help. But God does not view these things through a natural lens, but rather the supernatural lens of a ruling king. And so great and glorious God, mighty ruler of heaven and earth, we bring these broken places, some broken people, areas of pain, And ask that you would demonstrate your kingship, your rule, your lordship over them now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, God, I ask that you would break the power of fear. There are some in this room who are so reluctant to go to bed at night because they're afraid of what's going to visit them as they sleep. Lord, some of them are just leaving lights on in the room. I know that in my spirit. And I say now to that spirit of fear, I command you to lift. You be gone in Jesus' name. The word of god declares that there is no fear for those who are in christ jesus no fear because perfect love casts out fear lord where there is brokenness in mind or in body or in spirit for those we love we invite you to bring healing in those places now lord where where doctors have said there is no hope we don't look to doctors though we appreciate them they do not rule from the throne room of God. You do. So, for any within the sound of my voice that are facing challenges or complexities that are beyond their ability, we freely acknowledge, Lord God, that there are places where we are incapable and say, Let your grace be brought to bear in those places now, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And, Lord, where hope has grown dim, I say, Let hope arise. In Jesus' name, where disappointment has just come time and time and time again, I say no more. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, you who can make something out of nothing, you who are the God of creation, do what only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.